Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Wish we could say we had a good martini today, but we don't. We do have a bad and two crazies, though, and I think you might enjoy at least those a little bit, but uh, the, the craziness does not lean towards the good. We'll say that as well. We're brought to you today by the Headspace app, and Jim, he kind of helped the rise of your career, and he's just the gift that keeps on giving. John Kerry, former Massachusetts senator, former secretary of state, the band is getting back together. He is the new Special envoy to the climate crisis, CNN. Joe Biden on Monday appointed John Kerry as a special presidential envoy for climate, underscoring his commitment to tackling the global crisis and offering a symbolic rebuke to President Donald Trump's lack of leadership on the issue. This is the news. Uh, Kerry, who is President Barack Obama's Secretary of State, will be a cabinet-level official in Biden's administration and will sit on the National Security Council. So, Jim, this is the guy who, of course, led us into the Paris climate deal, which Biden is, for some reason, all set to get us back into. Uh, and if there's anyone in politics who knows a lot about hot air, it's uh, it's John Kerry. But uh, this is a guy whose uh, bluster and uh, arrogance, I'm sure, will have us uh, annoyed in no time. Yeah, Greg. And, I, you know, I, I was kind of enjoying the news yesterday and, and chuckling about it because special envoys are not it sounds really important. You know, it, it even has the word special in their name. I don't know if you realize I'm no mere presidential envoy. I'm a special presidential envoy. So you'd better do as I say. And the fact that it's cabinet level, there's some significance and symbolism to that. It means he'll get to attend the cabinet meetings. The fact that he's on the National Security Council, that too is somewhat symbolic. I mean, you know, but ultimately, in the end, most of this is saying you get to attend more meetings. Uh, they, get, they don't get to exclude you because your rank isn't important enough. The point I tried to make yesterday is that when it comes to the ability to actually get things done in Washington, what matters is budgetary authority, meaning can you spend the money? Do you have the discretion to spend the money the way you want? Do you have regulatory authority uh, that allows you to set the rules, write the regulations, you know, say what has to be done? Thirdly, do you have access to the president? I guess because of the cabinet meetings and such like that, you know, John Kerry will have reasonable levels of access to the president. Without those three things, your job doesn't really have much. You're, you're getting responsibility, but you don't really get that much power to change anything. And my suspicion is that this is basically a scapegoat in waiting. It means that when two or three years, nothing's happened on your issue, the president can fire you and blame you for not getting stuff done. When in fact, you never really had any power to get things done anyway. Well, that may be true. I suspect that the cabinet meetings will now be at least 20% longer. I also suspect that assuming uh, Tony Blinken gets confirmed as Secretary of State, uh, there will be times they're talking about diplomatic things and John Kerry will be like, oh, Tony, you have no idea. Uh, and so uh, just, just, just carries and just oozing arrogance all over the meeting. And, of course, it means our, you know, personal freedom, our economy could be at stake because John Kerry is going to be pushing an agenda, of course, which we're not going to like as conservatives one bit. Yeah. The, the other aspect of how a special envoy can have a certain amount of power came, ironically, in the early Obama years where Hillary Clinton was secretary of state. And then President Obama named a special envoy to the Middle East peace process. I think he had a special envoy for counterterrorism. All of a sudden, he named like four or five special envoys who all had some sort of authority or responsibility about a particular big issue in foreign policy. 
And I guess the idea was Hillary Clinton was there to get the scraps. Anything that wasn't covered by these big, important stuff, that's yours, Hillary. And that was seen as kind of a symbolic chipping in on her authority. And that's where you end up getting friction and tension and things like that. But the irony is, Greg, I don't think there'll be anybody else who will really be yearning to be the climate change guy, uh, particularly overseas for the Biden administration. Whoever the EPA administrator is will probably want to, you know, obviously will have a big say in that. And my guess is I'd be, I'd be surprised if it didn't turn out to be uh, the governor of Washington, Jay Inslee. But all in all, that, that's, you know, generally focused on domestic stuff. And I guess, uh, you know, Kerry's jobs to try to restart the Paris Accord and, you know, Considering his brilliant diplomatic skills, I, I think, you know, the Biden group really knows what they're doing here. <laughs> wow. We might have the charisma of Jay Inslee in Washington, too. Oh, boy. Uh, well, well, I mean, when you say Inslee and Biden, you know, there's a <laughs> dynamic duo if you've ever seen. Yeah. And Kara throwing carry. My gosh. OK, well, if you uh, already have a migraine about uh, how much damage they're going to do to our economy over uh, this pursuit of uh, the climate agenda, or you just imagine yourself being in a series of meetings over and over again with John Kerry, you're going to need to get your head right. And so that's where the uh, Headspace app can come in. Because look, life can be stressful even under normal circumstances. So if you're dealing with John Kerry, uh, that's not even normal anymore. That's even beyond that. And 2020, of course, has made things even more stressful in a lot of ways. You need stress relief that goes beyond quick fixes. And that's where Headspace comes in. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations, in an easy to use app. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Overwhelmed? Headspace has a three minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind down sessions that their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Now, as I mentioned before, our chief of operations here has said that a lot of different folks uh, at Radio America are using uh, Headspace. I have not, but he says that covering this news cycle, our employees definitely need to decompress and recharge each day. Our team, he says, uses Headspace to refresh their minds, flushing out the daily buildup of conflict, chaos, and worries that drag all of us down. He says a lot of folks are sleeping better at night and are more focused during the day and they feel better, which we all need in a year like 2020. Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. Uh, Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash martini. That's headspace.com slash martini for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal they're offering right now, so head to headspace.com slash martini today. All right, Jim, let's move to our first crazy martini. And we've got a lot of ideas going on right now about what went right, what went wrong during this election in terms of the voting. But BuzzFeed and a lot of other people in uh, the elite circles are ready to inject another idea. Uh, this is from BuzzFeed. As Americans reflect on the 2020 election, many are now considering ways to reform the voting process. Should the Electoral College still exist? Should Election Day be a federal holiday? What can we do to stamp out voter suppression that accounts in part for low participation rates? 
But fewer Americans are asking a question that has already been answered by more than 20 countries around the world, including Australia, Belgium, and Brazil. What if we were required to turn up at the polls? A group of more than 20 election scholars and voting rights advocates have this year been urging Americans to think about the benefits of adopting compulsory voting. The group, led by the Brookings Institution and Harvard University's Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, put out a report in July making the case for what they more palatably refer to as universal civic duty voting. Their hope is that more Americans consider ways the voting system may more accurately reflect the country's makeup, compulsory voting, and all the reforms that would likely come with it may start to look attractive. And they say at the beginning, you know, we need a, a state to be the laboratory for this. We're not going to be able to foist this on the country all at once. Uh, Jim, we talked about mandatory government uh, edicts in the form of vaccines yesterday. Uh, I don't like mandatory voting either. I generally prefer anyone who's informed, uh, go ahead and vote. I don't want people voting because they have to and don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I can't bring myself to support the Ignorant People Participating Act of 2021, Greg. <laughs> um, my, my suspicion is that if you don't want to vote, you shouldn't. If you don't feel like following campaigns and elections and government and what's going on there, no one should be forcing you to. I think there's great danger in getting people to do this. Greg, in, in that article in BuzzFeed, they didn't really speculate like, so are they going to mandate this just for presidential years? Would they mandate this for not merely um, uh, in presidential years, but in, in midterms. But like, oh, here in Virginia, we vote for governor's races in off years, so does New Jersey. Uh, and a lot of places have their mayoral elections, county elections, uh, local elections, one, not in November, and then two, at the various points, is, is it going to be mandatory for every race at every level? I haven't seen that they say that. I assume they want that in as many elections as possible. I assume under the Kamala, Kamala Harris version of this proposal, SWAT teams will be kicking down your door <laughs> if you don't vote in a Board of Education race, right? That's, you know. Uh, how about homeowners associations? Uh, you know, they, they have elections and a local pool board. Are we, we're going to make people participate in that one, too? You know, corporations have uh, uh, shareholders and proxy. You know, you, are we going to ban proxy meetings? Are we going to say that, no, no, you have to. They're going to have to hold these meetings in the arenas? Look, not caring is a fundamental American right. <laughs> Greg, it's time somebody stood up for the inactivists. It's time somebody stood up for the apathy. Because for all of us who are apathetic and unmotivated and don't want to have to deal with all these other people's problems, what do we want? Nothing. When do we want it? We don't care. <laughs> Soon, preferably. Uh, it, it's kind of ridiculous, but I think it does kind of indicate this Strange. It's not just nanny state. It's, it's almost like autocratic because it's a very short step from you must vote to you must vote a certain way or you must, you know, there's some of that. I, I don't trust people who want to force other people to do things against their will. That is fundamentally at odds with what we're as a country. And oh, by the way, like we had 66.5% turnout of those who were eligible this year, not registered voters. Those includes people who are Grown adults uh, do not have any reasons why their their voting rights have been abrogated for you know, criminal convictions or, or anything like that. They're eligible to vote. They just never got registered. Again, this is on you, American citizens. You, if you want to vote, you, you government can't do everything for you. The government can't bend over backwards. You've got to do something. Overall, this uh, 66.5. Minnesota, the champion, I think, for several cycles now, had 79.9% turnout of those who were eligible. And by the way, I went down to the lowest... Uh, and this is all as of November 18th. So it's possible these numbers get tweaked a little bit. I don't expect any significant changes. Oklahoma, the lowest one, 
55%. So you're well over half. Greg, when you and I were growing up, this was actually considered high turnout. Oh, yeah. Um, Arkansas, West Virginia, just behind it, 56, 57%. Hawaii is traditionally one of the last lowest ones. Um, and I'd like to blame Barack Obama for that. I can't really come up with any good justification for that. But I'm just going to observe. I have a suspicion that the more your state is competitive, the more interest there is in elections. The less competitive your state is, the less interest there is in elections, or at least in general elections. Oh, by the way, are we going to make voting in primaries mandatory? How's that going? Anyway, it's a completely unworkable idea. It's a terrible idea. Naturally, the gang at BuzzFeed is giving a serious consideration. <laughs> exactly. Uh, apparently, they do want it for all at least federal elections because they were wringing their hands in this story about how 67-year-olds had a far bigger influence on the 2014 midterms than 18-year-olds. And Jim, as I recall, we like the 2014 midterms, so that's another reason not to get behind this. But, you know, if something's compulsory, there's a penalty for not doing it. And it says here, U.S. compulsory voting advocates mostly want to follow Australia's lead and levy a minimal penalty at most for those who don't show up to vote, either a very low fee or small community service commitments, which could be waived for legitimate excuses. However, the one upside here is that uh, in Australia, where uh, mandatory voting exists. They have a tradition of uh, voting and then purchasing a celebratory sausage wrapped in bread, affectionately known as a democracy sausage. So there you go. I do support democracy sausages. Uh, I also support all kinds of sausages, and I, I don't know if all German sausages can be accurately characterized as democracy sausages, at least not in history. Uh, but the other thing, you know, now that I think about it, Greg, I changed my mind. Democrats... You should explicitly campaign on a platform that calls for punishing young people with fines <laughs> if they do not vote. Go with that, guys. See how, see how far it takes you. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter. On every edition of the Sarah Carter podcast, I say we're taking back the story. And that's exactly what we have to do. Whether it's the Russia hoax, the relentless attacks on President Trump pretending Antifa doesn't exist, or covering up for the repressive Chinese government, the mainstream media isn't interested in the truth. It's up to us to uncover the truth and share it with others. Please join me in taking back the story on the Sarah Carter podcast. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jim. Well, we're two days away from Thanksgiving, and nobody loves uh, to prepare for the holidays more than A, being told you can't have people in your house, and B, being told you can't buy alcohol. Well, guess what's happening in Pennsylvania, the same state where you're supposed to have a mask on in your own house if you have company over? Pennsylvania officials on Monday issued a stay-at-home advisory and announced they will restrict alcohol sales in bars and restaurants starting at 5 p.m., on Thanksgiving Eve in an effort to combat the rise of new coronavirus cases and an alarming rate of hospitalizations in the state. Quote, we are in a very disastrous situation, Governor Tom Wolf said Monday. We'll be stepping up enforcement of all public health orders. Uh, he says that indoor dining may continue, takeout is encouraged, but the liquor ban uh, temporarily is in effect because he says the biggest day for drinking is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I don't like addressing that any more than anyone else does, but it's a fact. When people get together in that situation, it leads to an increase in the exchange of fluids. That leads to increased <laughs> infection. <laughs> Interpret that as you will, Jim. I, I was going to say that, boy, th these guys remember that first night coming back, uh, you know, for, for Thanksgiving from college really differently than I remember. Right? <laughs> Maybe the Amtrak was always running slowly. Um, I'm going to take a moment to address the fine people of Pennsylvania. Dear Pennsylvanians, as a man born and raised in New Jersey, I've always liked you as our metaphorical backyard. <laughs> we 
fact, I really like Pennsylvania. I go there several times a year, most years. My in-laws still live there. Uh, I was married in the state in the state of Pennsylvania. It's a you know beautiful state, full of wonderful people. But come on, <laughs> what is wrong with you? And the first indication that there was something really wrong with Pennsylvanians came a few years ago about this very issue of purchasing alcohol, where I thought it was frustrating that here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, if I want to buy alcohol, I have to go to a state-run store, and honestly, it's fine. It's not great. Ironically, you go across the river to Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C., the cesspool in Sodom Gomorrah on the Potomac, at least has really well-stocked liquor stores. They probably need them, but nonetheless, you can find almost anything that can be for sale in District of Columbia. You go to Virginia, it's mostly the standards. They can special order you something if you need it, but by and large, you're only going to find the, you know, the, the standard issue large sale brands. You don't see a lot of those uh, rare and unique whiskeys or small distil batch distillery products and stuff like that. Then maybe this isn't your thing. But my point of view would be that, look, if I'd like, if I want to have that, it should be easy for me to get that. You know, if we had privatized liquor stores like Bob McDonald had called for on the campaign trail way back in 2009, maybe I'd have more options. But because this is literally a state-run enterprise, but at least beer and wine can be sold anywhere, and I can go to Total Wine, and I can see about a bazillion different types of beers that I can get, including every microbrew, and all kinds of wineries. At least Virginia's got that going for it. Greg, if you want to go to, at least as of a few years ago, if you want to go buy beer in Pennsylvania, not only do you have to go to a state-run store, but I believe, at least you know, a couple of years ago, I'm visiting my in-laws. They're generally wine drinkers or, or fancy liqueur. I wanted a beer with dinner. So like, yeah, let's go to the store, let's see beer. Well, now I can't go to the grocery store, at least as of then. I think they may have loosened the laws a little bit since then. Uh, I have to go to the state-run store to buy beer. And I think the smallest amount that I could get was something like a 12-pack. It might have even been like a, a larger, like a, like a 24 pack or something like that. Now, I only needed like one beer. I was going to get a six pack. That was my intention. It is this ludicrously complicated bureaucratic system that basically works to eliminate uh, consumer choices. I Even by the standards of the like if, if the state wants a monopoly, run your monopoly well. Don't require people to make these crazy purchases. Like you're not Utah, okay? You, you don't, you're not full of people who don't want people to drink in general. So anyway, my, my alcoholic heart and liver are deeply <laughs> offended by these approaches. I also don't understand why the advantage of trying to bar it for a certain, you know, on one night, all you're going to do is rush people, get people rushing out to buy to buy alcohol in, in before the deadline kicks in. They're going to do it in their houses instead of at bars where bartenders could say, hey, buddy, you've had enough. Uh, you know, there's nothing about this makes sense. If you're running your state and you're worried about the coronavirus, make all the recommendations you want. But the moment you want to put the power of police behind it. The moment you want to make it a ban, the moment you want to put people uh, in legal jeopardy for violating it, you got to walk, tread very carefully. And throughout this pandemic, we haven't seen anything. By golly, Pennsylvania, Washington crossed the Delaware because he was trying to get away from you and your crazy alcohol laws. <laughs> oh, man, you think we'll see a 24-hour bootlegging operation here? Um, I don't know. But, uh, you know, the other thing, and this is actually serious, uh, depending on where you live in Pennsylvania, if you live in the Philly area, you can end up driving to Jersey, which means you're on the road longer after you've drunk, possibly, or depending on where you're on the state, could be Ohio, could be New York, could be Maryland, wherever. Uh, I mean, you might end up having more people on the road for longer, might not lead to more coronavirus infections, but it might lead to some other problems, or you could just <laughs> let people live their lives. 
I, I'm picturing like sometime after Thanksgiving weekend, the state's going to come back. Great news. We reduced the rate of, of coronavirus spread by 24 percent. Unfortunately, drunk driving accidents were up 50. So it kind of balanced out there. I got to say it, Jim. Way to go, Pennsylvania. Way to go. You, you have ended up on our list of states of shame, Pennsylvania. You joined Nevada and was it Illinois? What was the other one? Oh, I'm sure Illinois has been there. I think Michigan's probably earned it a couple times this year. That's I mean, right. I... Michigan was up. Yeah. <laughs> Whitmer just by herself got it up there. And right now people are saying, wait, Cuomo in New York didn't get up there? But anyway, so. well, some, of the, some of these states kind of go without saying. Yes, exactly. All right, Jim, on that note, we'll reconvene tomorrow. We'll actually be talking about things we're thankful for for this year. Uh, And we did come up with a list, so we'll talk about it then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please remember to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already. We are very grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Also, remember you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day, and please join us Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.